Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week even food science. It's STEM for those of us who don't have any jokes for foodies. If you do, let us know. That That was a good one. (laughs) I like it. It works both ways because lettuce has stems. (laughs) It's multi-level. Feeling pretty good about that one. Hey, Gillian, how's your week? What's going on? You know, it was it was good. I was talking with my cousin, who is actually the cousin that I made the potion with, with the Pert Plus. Pert Plus, yep, yep. Harkening back, and I realized... <laughs> Then my cousin is a material scientist. And because of our... Yes, I know. Which, shame on me for not knowing it till now. (laughs) But, um... (laughs) Wait, hold on, wait, hold on, wait, hold on, wait. Wait. (laughs) This podcast made you realize your cousin was a scientist? Yes. That's bad, right? (laughs) No, it's actually really great. It shows the (laughs) power... Hey, shows the power of a podcast. You know... Previous to our interview with Dr. Ramirez, he may have said it, but it just went over my head because I didn't know what it meant. But now I actually knew what it meant. What's his field of, like, what's his focus? Let's not get too in-depth. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway, what's going on with you? You know me. You know me. Just cooking. Just cooking. Um, I read something about... What is it? I guess I could call it a cooking tool um, Mm. uh, ingredient even, Mm. which is called meat glue, Mm. which sounds really awful. But it's interesting to read about from a science standpoint, because what it does is it takes two pieces of meat that are separate and you can bond them together because you're bonding the proteins together. Oh. When you cook, it's usually a chemical reaction. So it's science. You know what I mean? Like I had really considered it. I'm not going to start gluing all my meat together. Um, but I thought it was an interesting read <laughs> about how pro- proteins work. It that we use is, it in stuff like chicken nuggets. That makes sense. And what a perfect segue to this week's interview um, and also to our story time, because we're going to share a food-related story this week because... This week, we are interviewing J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Woo! Oh, I was so excited for this one. I begged for it to happen. Even after it was on the books, I begged for it to be moved up weeks. And they were like, Deanna, it's already scheduled. And I was like, today, today. <laughs> uh, but Kenji uh, is a food writer that uh, thinks about the science behind dishes. Kenji writes about his experiments to create the tastiest recipes in his columns and in a book called The Food Lab, which I loved. And you have a copy of too, right? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, so we had some fun questions for him. Yeah, and it was really interesting to hear why he's so curious about food and how we cook it. Yes, so now, now, let's get to our interview with Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. Yes. I have a question. 
Um, I'm very intimidated by cooking. I didn't grow up cooking. I still don't really know how to cook too many things. And it still feels very mysterious to me why things work or they don't work. But it seems like your work is accessing how science can help demystify cooking. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, actually, I mean, so what you're telling, what you're saying right now is actually very similar to my experience. You know, I didn't grow up, I didn't really grow up cooking. So my mom came to the U.S. Um, from Japan when she was 16. And, and as she was raising us, like, I think she, she did a lot of work sort of trying to assimilate. You know, there was some Japanese food, but there was also a lot of sort of like Betty Crocker, like, you know, like <laughs> hardcore American repertoire recipes that she got into. And, and so... You know, growing up, I didn't really have um, what I would consider like a personal sort of food culture, the way that a lot of people who grow up eating the recipes that they learned from their grandparents or, the, or the, you know, that have been passed down through their families or through their through their immediate culture um, might experience. And so, yeah, and so I didn't really have a sort of like a food culture that I could call my own. And I never had these sort of recipes that I, that I had learned, um, you know, from my parents or from my family. And so when I went to college and I started like having to cook for myself a little bit, it's like I didn't really know what I was doing, right? And then when I got my first restaurant job, um, I had no idea how to, I mean, I, I got a restaurant job by accident. Like I went in looking for a job as a waiter um, and and wound up getting a job as a prep cook only because one of the cooks didn't show up that day for work. Wow. Um, and, so, and so I was like handed a knife and told and said like, all right, wow. like here, like here's how you chop an orange. Now go and chop all these oranges. Um, and, um, and as I, so as I was learning to cook, um, I came at it from this approach of like, hey, like, why are we doing it this way? Mm. Why do we do it like that? You know, and I and I had this sort of scientific inquiry um, because my, you know, my background was in science. And so I, yeah, I always wanted to know, like, why are we doing it this way? What's what's actually going on? Why do, you know, why is it traditionally done this way? And so rather than coming at food from a place of sort of, um, you know, tradition and family and culture that a lot of people come at it from, I, I came at it as sort of like a a complete noob, you know, like someone who who really wanted to just look at it from a much more sort of basic perspective. And and that's sort of what led to eventually, you know, writing the food lab and, and, and exploring food in the way I have. And, you know, and I think luckily for me, at least for my career, there are a lot of people who grew up in sort of similar situations. Um, you know, maybe they had two parents who worked and so they, they ate a lot of takeout meals or, or, or and they grew up in households where food wasn't necessarily a central aspect of their daily life. Mm. And so a lot of people, a lot of these same people as they got into their 20s and now they're in their 30s and maybe they're starting their own families, um, were in a similar position to me where they, they didn't have this sort of built-in understanding of certain recipes or, or their own food culture. And so um, I think that's why it's sort of this approach, you know, this sort of first principles, science-based approach to cooking um, has been appealing mm. to a lot of people. Although I also do want to make it clear that I, I don't believe at all that there's like a dichotomy between you know, science and culture or science and like that. It's not, it's not that you're either cooking this way or you're cooking that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for, for me, science and, and sort of an understanding of technique that can actually help you become a sort of more personal cook and help you understand traditional recipes even better. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like when a, when a musician, you know, like a professional musician can practice their scales and they can practice their chords and they can understand sort of the theory of why music work and that works. And that doesn't mean that they have any less sort of heartfelt emotion when they're playing, you know, it's, those are, it's all just kind of tools to understanding and becoming more, um, more of a personal cook. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's what I've always really liked about your writing is that it does feel as though it's bridging those things that we maybe know innately or through tradition um, and saying, but there is science there. It's mm -hmm. not as though these are two separate things. Um, can we talk a little bit about your science background? I read that you're the son of a geneticist and an immunologist and the grandson of a chemist. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. My, I mean, my father is a is an immunologist, um, and uh, and my grandfather uh, was an organic chemist. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, science was sort of just the, the the common language in my family. You know, from both sides of the family, there was there were scientists, and you know, and my grandparents lived one floor below us in an apartment building growing up. And so my dad and my grandfather would frequently, you know, whenever we had meals together, they would end up talking about science. Mm -hmm. And so just sort of um, through osmosis, I guess, like um, me and my sisters both, you know, picked up a lot of sort of how science works and how scientists talk and what the kind the kinds of things scientists think about. Um, and so growing up, it was always sort of my, um, the thing I, the subject I was best at in school. Um, you know, I, when I went to college, um, I started out as a biology major mm. oh. and the main reason I stopped is because, you know, I had spent a few summers working in biology labs and, and as much as I loved sort of learning biology, the actual physical work of it, I found like just mind, mind numbingly tedious. Oh, really? <laughs> I found, yeah, just like, I just found it very, very slow. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to have a lot of patience to be a good bi biologist. Yeah. And I just didn't have that. Um, and so that's actually what led to me thinking, you know, the summer after my sophomore year, I was like, I, I don't want to be stuck in this career that I just don't enjoy. Um, so that's, you know, that was the summer that I decided, you know, I'm going to take the summer off and, I'll just get a job as a waiter and sort of figure out what I want to do. And, you know, and luckily I ended up as a cook and loved it. And that's sort of, <laughs> it's all, it's all luck. It's all, it's all just luck. Your how whole I ended life up where changed I am. because that one guy didn't show up for work. One day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> do you still get use out of having studied science? Um, I mean, you no, know, not, not so much biology specifically, but, but certainly, you know, you know, science you know, science, science is not like a collection of jargon or collection of facts. You know, like a lot of people have this sort of misconception that like the facts, facts are what make the science, which is not really like science is really just is a, is a method, you know, mm -hmm. science, like science is a is a way of looking at problems and trying to solve them. Um, and so certainly, you know, like learning how to do science um, at school and in biology labs is something that um, has Play, played a huge role in, in in my career, and you know, and and the type of science I do is is different from you know capital letter scientists do, um, <laughs> but but it does, but I don't think it makes it any less sort of real science. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, if you if if you're at home and you're and you're cooking things and you're taking notes and you're sort of trying to figure out you know, what did I do differently this time than last time? And how did that give me different results? Like that's, that's science, what you're doing, right? Like science, science is like, is, is kind of fooling around, but writing it down in the process. <laughs> See, I just get so discouraged when I try to cook something and it goes poorly that I never try it again. But I think <laughs> what I need to do is think, also think about what did I do and apply the scientific method. I, you know what, I I don't love it when things don't go well, especially if I've done them for hours. Um, <laughs> but I don't mind. I think that kind of fooling around and writing down in the process, that is actually how I cook. I have a little notebook of like granola recipes I made up during uh, quarantine. And like, you know, if I make, this is going to sound dumb, but if I make a new pot of beans, you know, I'll write down kind of notes about what I like about it, what I did, how to repeat the process. That's so cool. And, and I've known chefs that walk around with a notebook just like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me and chefs, me and the James Beard Award winners. Yes. Yeah, we're. <laughs> hey, wait, how did you get food? Uh, like, how did food come to you when you were growing up? Well, I remember my favorite after-school snack that I would make myself was 
when I would melt butter with sugar and cinnamon in the microwave and make my own cinnamon toast. And I really thought that that was advanced cooking. That is. Well, sorry, I'm not going to say it's advanced <laughs> cooking, but you're looking at when bread toasts, there's a Maillard reaction. You're uh, you got to get the ratios of sugar to butter to cinnamon. Right. I actually don't know how to make cinnamon toast. I've never had it. I don't know that mine was very good. Can I tell you, um, I used to watch my mom cook all the time. And my dad used to watch cooking shows. So between that, when I was growing up, I used to really annoy my mom by having something called the mother-daughter cooking show where she was (gasps) cooking. And I would sing this stupid theme song. The mother-daughter cooking show. And just try to interview her as she was like just desperately trying to get dinner on the table. It was very irritating and I loved it. That's so sweet. (laughs) It was always my dream for us to have a cooking show together. I still have that dream. I'd love it. So did you go to culinary school or was your training as a chef in kitchens? Uh, It was all in kitchens. So um, I just worked sort of in a wide range of restaurants um, and and learned from there and also read read a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm just curious to know, um, are there things that people learn uh, while they're cooking uh, that kind of have a basis, a strong basis in science? Yeah, you know, I think there there are multiple ways to learn cooking. Um, and, you know, there is sort of the old school approach to cooking where, you know, you you learn the recipes of your parents, or if you're a, if you're a professional, you learn the recipe that your, your chef taught you, or you learn the technique that your chef taught you. Um, and then there's sort of like the more sort of, I think, I, I think the sort of more modern approach to it where um, you really learn the fundamentals. So, you know, when I was starting my career 20 years ago, um, the way kitchens were run was that you did it the way you were told because that's the way you do it um, because that's the way the chef did it and 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 I don't mean to you know I don't I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to do it because in a restaurant you know your your goals are sort of consistency um, and efficiency and so if you find one method that works mm-hmm. um, it's totally fine to just stick with it you don't really need to understand why it works mm-hmm. to be able to produce the same results over and over that said you know by questioning things and by sort of looking at them from you know I mean, fundamentally science is about questioning things right and so by looking at things from a more sort of open and scientific and questioning approach that can lead you to interesting new results and can also, you know, lead to the better someone understands something, the more they're able to adapt it to changing conditions or to adapt it to, to arrive at results that are that are different from, you know, the, the same ones that they've gotten over and over. It's almost it's like, um, you know, the 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 analogy that I use is that, you know, following a specific recipe or following a technique that someone just told you to do is kind of like getting turn by turn directions on your phone from, you know, if you're like, you're going from your house to the grocery store, like you can, you can walk the whole way, just staring at your phone and watching the dotted line, you know, it's saying turn left and 50 feet and you can get to this grocery store. Um, but you don't really get an idea of what your neighborhood is like. And you don't get an idea of all the other places you could potentially go. And so then, you know, one day maybe there's construction and you can't follow that same exact <laughs> path. So what do you, what do you do? And it's like, you know, it's like, the same thing. It's like one day maybe you you can't find that pan that you're using. So now mm-hmm. instead of a stainless steel skillet, you're using a cast iron skillet. Or, or you know, there, there's all these various things that can change. Like you're, the onions you're using today are a little different from the onions you were using last winter. Um, and so there, there's, there's all these things you can change. And so by learning sort of techniques and the science behind how something works, that's sort of like, you know, being given the full map. And it's like, now that I have this map, I can decide how I want to get from point A to point B. And I can choose to go a different way or or I can choose to go to a completely different place if I want to. And, you know, and th- that's sort of the power of, I think, of, of science and understanding um, on a more sort of technical level how things work. 
Um, let's talk about misunderstood ingredients. What do you consider to be one of the most misunderstood ones? Misunderstood ingredients. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe something like salt mm. is, is, mm. is relatively misunderstood. Um, the role of salt in cooking, like it has so many different roles in cooking that are, that are not just about making food saltier. Mm. You know, so, so first of all, like salt acts as, as a flavor enhancer, like without, it, it opens up, like, it like literally opens up chemical pathways in our tongues that allow us to perceive other flavors. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and so like a tomato with no salt will taste a little bit like a tomato, but you put a little bit of salt on it and suddenly it tastes a lot more like a tomato than it did, right? It's not just about making it saltier. It actually sort of brings out flavors in it. And, and the same thing with like, you know, baking, like you can, uh, a pancake or a cookie that has no salt in it will taste really flat and sort of dull, whereas just like the teeniest little pinch of salt, just not enough that it makes it taste salty, but just mm-hmm. enough that it, that it allows your tongue to open up these, you know, these pathways um, will let you sort of perceive all the other flavors better and give it a much sort of rounder flavor flavor. Um, but salt also, you know, also plays a, like a much more sort of active role in some types of cooking. So, you know, like I, I remember my mom, when I was living in Brooklyn, um, I invited my mom, uh, to our apartment and I had made these sausages that I was grilling outside. Um, and my mom like has this real big aversion to salt. And so, um, she's like, these are good, but like, can you make them, can you make them without salt? And I was like, you can't, you actually can't make sausages without salt. Um, and, and, um, you know, you can cut down on the salt, meat, but you can't, you literally cannot make a sausage without salt. And that's because salt, when you, when you add it to ground meat, um, the salt will actually dissolve some, some proteins that then, um, when you then sort of knead the meat together, those proteins will then bind together. Um, and that's what gives, um, sausages its sort of snappy structure oh, without wow. salt. A sauce, a sausage will just crumble. In fact, I mean, the word for sausage actually comes from salt. Um, what? yeah, what? sausage, salad, like, oh, there's a lot of these word food words that, that all come from the, from Latin for salt. Um, but yeah, sa- sa- sausage without salt will just kind of crumble. <laughs> On the other hand, if you take salt, um, if you're making like a hamburger something where you want a sort of looser texture mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. If you take salt and add it to your hamburger meat um, before you form the patties, um, you'll end up with a sort of rubbery, mm. tough texture. So, you know, for salt, so so when you're making sausages, you need to add the salt at the beginning. Mm. Um, whereas when you're making hamburgers, you don't want to add the salt until until the very end and just on the exterior because it, it, because it really drastically changes the actual structure of it and the texture of it. Um, so yeah, salt is one of those ingredients where it's just like, it does. It does all these kind of magical, <laughs> magical things that are beyond just making things taste saltier. I love your what? <laughs> Very genuine. <laughs> See that I, I understand why you love his writing so much because even just hearing those facts about salt makes me understand cooking mm-hmm. um, better. And I feel like the more I learn, I guess the less afraid I would be to cook. Or I'd understand why things are going wrong. Well, and here's the fun thing is that, you know, he's he's talking about salt and, you know, when to salt your hamburgers. And I'm like, I remember that. Like, I, I it's a rule that I have because I remember that from his writing because he yeah. does explain things so well. I'm so excited when I hear him talk about things like salt um, because I think about like Samin Nosrat's salt, fat, acid, heat, which I think also brought a lot of light, you know, to salt. I remember growing up and watching Simply Ming, Chef Ming Tsai, uh, and like listening to him talk about how important like salinity was in cooking and I'm just like oh all this stuff is so cool all right let's pause the conversation and take a short break we'll be right back (laughs) 
we're back. Uh, we got some questions from listeners that we want to make sure to ask. So okay. the first one is about browning. So mm-hmm. at Communis asks, what do most home cooks get wrong about browning meat? I would say not giving it time. Mm. Um, mm. So especially with more delicate meats, you know, things like like chicken um, that you're so, – so first of all, not properly preheating your pan. Um, if you don't properly preheat your pan, like if you take it like a cold chicken breast and stick it in your skillet while it's not sizzling hot um, – the proteins in the meat can actually can form like actual chemical bonds with the steel mm. on the skillet. Um, and so it will stick to it and it will not, and it will be very, very difficult to come up. Whereas um, with a properly preheated skillet, um, when you have a little layer of oil in there, that's very hot. Like as you're putting the chicken down, it'll act, you know, the proteins will actually start to coagulate and change shape before they hit the metal itself. Um, and so they don't form those bonds. So not properly preheating your skillet um, is what's going to cause your meat to stick. And can I, can I ask a follow-up right quick? You mentioned steel. Is this a problem that you notice mainly with steel pans or is it cast iron too? Yes. Yeah. So it won't happen. So cast iron, properly seasoned cast iron, um, you know, it has a layer of polymerized oil. So it's essentially, you know, like a layer of plastic Mm. on top of the, on top of it that will give it a sort of nonstick. Yeah. So if you're using nonstick or a well-seasoned cast iron or carbon steel skillet, um, there shouldn't really be a problem with meat sticking, but stainless steel for sure, like it will stick really, it'll stick hard Mm. if you don't, um, if you don't properly preheat it. So not properly preheating. And then, and then generally just under browning, you know, not giving your meat enough time. You know, what I was taught as a cook um, is that up until it turns black, the more browning, the better, you know, because you're just developing more, more complexity and more flavor. Um, And so you can really take your browning a lot further than, um, than the timing in a recipe will generally suggest you can. Okay, so this is a slight follow up to that. At Zach Oyama asks if it's possible to make a good turkey smash burger. And for those who don't know, a smash burger is a really thin uh, burger, like the kind that you get at In-N-Out, just very thin and well done and griddled. Um, and turkey does not have as much fat as beef. So sometimes it's really hard to get that brown, crispy exterior that smash burgers are known for. So we're talking about browning meat. Yeah, you can definitely make a good turkey. I would recommend using dark meat because it has a little more flavor. Um, but yeah, but you use the same basic process as, as when smashing um, a regular beef burger. Um, so dry skillet, no no fat on the skillet because you don't want you want the meat to kind of stick to the pan initially. This is one of those cases where you do want it to stick and not mm. um, so you don't add any oil to the pan initially. Um, uh, and you you smash it down hard. Um, turkey can be stickier than um, than beef. Um, so whatever implement you're using to smash with, whether it's a spatula or, you know, I use like a, a mortaring trowel at home on a, on a baking steel, but whatever instrument you're using to smash it with, um, turkey's going to want to stick to that a lot more than beef is. Um, so what I would recommend is getting a, um, a sheet of parchment paper, cutting out a little square, like a four by four inch square, um, putting your ball of turkey meat, um, you know, two to four ounces, two to five ounces, whatever size you want, um, putting the ball of turkey meat on the hot skillet or griddle, um, putting the parchment paper on top and then smashing it. Um, that way um, you can smash it out without without it sticking to the thing. And then you can kind of peel off that parchment and it'll get stuck to the uh, stuck to whatever your surface you're cooking on. Um, and then from there, I mean, same basic process. You just get a, uh, a really stiff, sharp spatula or better yet, you can get a a wallpaper scraper with a razor blade, oh like gosh. from a from a um, uh, home center, like Home Depot will sell them for like seven bucks, um, and you can use that to kind of scrape up 
um, the patty once it's, um, once it's really nice and brown on that first side. Um, yeah, I'm smashing. I cook, I cook my patties like 90% of the way through on that one side. So you get really nice browning and then scrape it up. Just let it barely touch the other side and, um, and it's done. And that will work yeah, for turkey as well as it does for, for beef. Um, you know, and just as like a turkey burger is going to be a little bit less sort of fatty and flavorful than a beef burger, um, a smashed turkey burger is also going to similarly be a little bit drier and not quite as flavorful as a beef, as a beef burger. But, you know, American cheese can, can, um, cover a multitude. American cheese cover. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think? Are you going to make a turkey smash burger? You know, I, I, I'll try it. And also until this interview, I never thought about, um, different pans except for size wise like mm, i never yeah, yeah. thought that there was a difference between a cast iron a stainless steel or a nonstick except for do i need a smaller or larger one so now i'm realizing first i have to figure out which type of pan is best for what i'm cooking mm-hmm. and that is going to make a substantial difference so i'm i'm feeling better about attempting a turkey smash burger. Ah, oh, that's great. I I will say that it's even just which type of pan you prefer. Like mm. I have a a very well seasoned cast iron skillet that I have named Ernestine that I got for a dollar at a garage sale. Did you have to reseason it when you got it, or? I did. I chose to. Yeah, um, because you know you want to. You don't know what people have been cooking in it, uh, and also you know I want to give it a really good cleaning and. So in order to really kind of, I went to get all that polymerized oil off, mm-hmm. scrape it up, uh, and I made my wife season it, actually. <laughs> so um, Kenji talked about cast iron skillets having a, a layer of polymerized oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that is, is basically it's oil. The oil has like uh, gone through a chemical change that f- causes it to form a bunch of little chains that all form together called polymers. And that helps protect the bare cast iron from things like water and you know other elements like cooking elements so it becomes kind of non-stick it doesn't it doesn't stick because the chains are all kind of stuck together that makes sense sense? yeah totally um our uh producer tamika actually has a question so i've been trying to to brown vegan butter and it doesn't brown like regular butter obviously i i know that there is a reason for it there's a food science reason why it doesn't brown but i don't know why can you explain <laughs> that yeah um so it's because in in butter so when you're browning butter the part that browns is the residual milk proteins mm. um so so butter is around depending where you get it but like 80 to 83% uh fat um, about 10 to 12% um, water, and then the rest, you know, like around 5%, maybe a little bit less, um, proteins, um, proteins and some sugars. Um, but the, it's those proteins, those solids that are, that are actually what's browning. So when you, when you, when you melt butter, initially you're going to see a kind of bubble, mm-hmm. right? And that foaming is when it hits, you know, around 212 degrees. That foaming is the, the water portion of the butter evaporating out. Um, and that, and then after that, as the butter, butter gets hotter and hotter, um, that's when the proteins, um, and sugars will start to brown. Um, and and that's what gives you those brown solids. That's what gives you that sort of nutty brown butter flavor. Mm. Um, vegan butter doesn't have those proteins in it. So, you know, vegan butter, it can be made through a variety of methods, but it's usually some kind of um, highly saturated fat. Uh, it could be coconut oil, it could be palm oil, something like that. Or it might be, a, you know, depending on the brand, it might be a hydrogenated uh, vegetable oil. Um, and then flavorings and, uh, and water that are emulsified together. So um, it doesn't have those same proteins in it. And so there's, without anything for, anything to brown, um, nothing browns. 
Is there something that you always personally struggled to cook well and then you learned about a scientific principle that unlocked how to cook that dish? I would say probably, you know, white meat chicken, white meat poultry, like chicken and turkey. Uh, you know, I grew up Thanksgiving. We we, we just kind of got used to super dry <laughs> Turkey, yes. because that's what it was, right? And um, and yes. and it wasn't until late, like years later, when I was working at Cooks Illustrated, and I was, you know, in my job one year, every year, you know, at a magazine, every year there's a new turkey recipe, um, and so you have to figure out a new way to cook turkey every every twelve months. But um, what you know, one year I was, it was my job to come up with a new turkey recipe, um, and so you know, the the method that we landed on that year was um was to spatchcock, you know, mm-hmm. butterfly it, um, and. You know, I, I had read about spatchcocking before and people were like, oh, yeah, this is great. But I never really thought to think about, you know, why does this method work? But then once you sort of thinking about like, all right, why? Like, what is the problem with turkey? What is the problem with chicken? Um, the fundamental problem with chicken or with turkey is that you're essentially trying to cook two different things at the same time, right? There's white meat and dark meat. And white meat, if you cook it beyond 160, 155 even, it'll start to dry out, you know, whereas dark meat... Um, it needs to get to at least 165 and preferably like 175 or so before um, otherwise it has a kind of like, you know, raw, rubbery, wet texture to it. Um, And so you're trying to get these two different parts of the same piece of meat to two different temperatures. And that's the sort of fundamental problem with with chicken and turkey is that you roast it until the juice in the leg runs clear, until the juice and until the leg hits 165. And by that point, you know, the the breast is up to probably like 175, 180, and it's super dry. Um, And so, you know, you can do things like you can brine your your chicken or turkey, which helps because brining um, will, um, you know, what it does is it makes it so that the muscles don't tighten up as much. So at at the same final temperature, it'll retain more moisture. It won't squeeze out as much moisture. Um, But it's sort of like a band you know, and so what spatchcocking does is, you know, with, with a traditional turkey, the shape of it actually makes the problem even worse because you have it in this roasting pan. And so the legs are kind of underneath the part that you're trying to cook the most are the most protected, whereas the breast kind of sticks out mm-hmm. on top mm-hmm. and that's getting the most heat directly from the oven. Mm-hmm. And so it makes the problem even worse. And so what spatchcocking does, um, you lay it out flat and suddenly like um, you'll find that the legs end up as exposed as the breast. And because the legs are a little bit thinner, they cook through faster. Um, and so oh. you now, you've basically just like solved every problem at once. Like you, you can cook it at a really high temperature. And by the time your breast meat is at 155 or 160, your legs are well over 165. They're usually at around 175 or 180. Um, and so it's, it's just like a sort of like simple geometry uh, it changes simply changing the geometry of the of the poultry, like completely changes the way it cooks, um, and it solves that that problem of dry breast meat. So basically, ever since um, ever since doing that, um, and you know, and then I I, I think I published. A, actually, I think the one I did for Cooks Illustrated wasn't butterfly. It was I cut it into parts and kind of like Tetris them onto a smaller <laughs> onto a small sheet pan. Um, and then a couple of years later, I did I did um, I did the spatchcock for Serious Eats, but based on the same basic principle. Um, but basically, like ever since I did that on Serious Eats, um, when Ever, you know, every year, like, what <laughs> one of the one of the great things about about writing online is that you don't have this like subscriber base that's looking for something new every year. You know, you can say, hey, like, here's the recipe from last year. Spatchcocking is still the best way to do it, so just do it. You know, you don't have to like, you don't have this sort of forced. We have to come up with something new, something better um, every single time. Um, and so, ever ever since I ever since I started spatchcocking my turkey every Thanksgiving, um, I just recommend people do it that way because it's the easiest, fastest. Uh, I think most foolproof way to do it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. You absolutely saved my Thanksgiving once. I spatch talk it <laughs> based on serious eats. Um, and I cooked that bird in 90 minutes, which was exactly the window of time I had to cook. I had given myself to cook it. So Yeah, 90 minutes. You. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> what is exciting for you about uncovering mysteries in food and food science? You know, in, initially what was exciting to me was that, you know, I had spent years working in restaurants. And, and you know, and d- during that time, I had all these personal questions that, like, I didn't know the answers mm. to, and I couldn't really find the resources to get those answers. You know, and, and, and there, there was obviously books like, um, you know, on food and cooking, um, McGee's book, um, Alton Brown had started Good Eats. Um, and those went a really long way in answering these questions. But, you know, but it wasn't until like I got my job at Cook's Illustrated and I started, you know, be sort of became my profession to um, explore these things. And so, so that was exciting to me that it's just like, I have all these questions. Now I like, now it's my job to be able to like, answer those questions. It was kind of like a dream job. It's like, you know, I get paid to do these things that I've been wondering for years. And so, you know, and so that, that was really exciting to me, just sort of the basic scientific inquiry um, and, you know, getting your questions and long-time questions answered is exciting. And, you know, and since then, I think what has become far more exciting for me is sort of building up a community and and seeing all these home cooks and, and you know, and, and even professionals who have gotten into the same things that I was into, you know, which is, which is, asking questions and trying to answer them. And, you know, and I discovered that, yeah, there's this huge community of of people who really had similar questions to what I had and really wanted these questions answered. Um, and so, yeah, and so, you know, and so just, just being able to write and, and come up with recipes and techniques that I see people using and people, you know, people write me letters or come up to me at events and say, you know, like, or like you just said, it's like, you know, I, I made your recipe for Thanksgiving. And, and to me, that's like, that's the coolest thing. It's like, you know, at a restaurant, what I loved working about working in restaurants is that like I'm doing this thing like with my hands and like I'm transforming these ingredients and there's like people on the other side of that door who are getting some kind of pleasure out of it, right? It's getting people together over a meal as people are enjoying themselves um, and I'm playing some role in that. And, you know, and at a restaurant, maybe you're doing that for a couple hundred people a night, mm-hmm. right? Whereas when you're writing a recipe that then goes, um, that then people go home and cook, it's like you're empowering these people to bring pleasure to their whole family or to their friends. Um, and that, you know, I think that's really, really cool. It's that like now, um, you know, instead of just making 50 to a hundred people happy per night, mm-hmm. like um, I'm playing a role in helping, you know, helping bring friends and family together and helping people enjoy themselves over a meal. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's what keeps me excited about doing it. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. This was wonderful. Oh, thank you for having me. This is, yeah, this is a lot of fun. Okay, let's take one last break, and then I, I cannot let go of what Kenji said about salt. Yes, and that is why we are going to share a story about salt. We'll be right back. And we're back. It's story time. Yes. I want to go back to something Kenji said during the interview, that salt is really misunderstood. I feel like he got us to think about it in a whole new way, but we wanted to learn more. It seems like salt is everywhere and not just for seasoning. Yes. So this week's story time is not about a person. This is the story of salt's critical role in the history of human experience. Wow, that sounds really big and elaborate. This is the really short version. (laughs) We mostly find salt in two places, seawater and through mining rock salt. 
Chemically, they're not exactly the same, but they're both compounds made of sodium and chloride. Salt is extremely important to humans. It's something that connects us so fundamentally, we hardly even think about it anymore. It's hard to overstress this point. 97% of the Earth by volume is salt water. There's so much salt in the world that saltiness has become one of the most common tastes across cultures. But the importance of salt goes way beyond our taste buds. Right. Let's point out three other ways that salt has been part of the human experience. The first one, we basically have no say in it. We have to consume salt. Our bodies need sodium to function. So just as a reminder, sodium is a component of salt. The main way we consume sodium is through the salt in our food. I feel like a lot of us get taught that in school, but the part about why we need to eat it is harder to remember. So sodium helps our bodies regulate fluids and electrolytes. It even helps our nerves and muscles function. Now, we're not saying add more salt to your food. We all know what happens when you have too much. But when your sodium levels are too low, it's called hyponatremia. The condition includes symptoms like muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness to start. Death is also something that can happen eventually, so it's no good. Salt is a dietary requirement. We all got to live, and we need a little salt to do that. We also used salt for medical stuff. Back in the day, people used salt water to cleanse wounds. There are records of people like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians using seawater as a medical treatment. What's really happening is when salt water hits a wound, it goes through its natural process of osmosis. That's pulling out water molecules, basically. But while it's doing that, it can also capture harmful bacteria. So it was a really simple and relatively effective cleanser. And for centuries, people have also been using salt to keep their food fresh. During our hunter-gatherer days, people would hunt animals and then, as quickly as possible, add salt to a fresh kill. That's because salt is a natural chemical preservative. A lot of factors can cause food to spoil, like humidity. But when you add salt, it draws out water from within meat or vegetables. It dehydrates it somewhat, but also temporarily keeps it from spoiling. I mean, it sounds so simple, but imagine if you didn't have anything to keep your food fresh. Historians say that being able to preserve food is key to the development of complex societies. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is food security, and that is no small thing. Salt was so valuable that it was sometimes more useful than money. The word salary actually has nothing to do with dollars. It comes from the word salt. During the days of the Roman Empire, soldiers in the Roman army would be paid in salt. Back then, people called it white gold. Okay, so we really got pulled down the rabbit hole after we interviewed Kenji. You should Google salt, too. It's wild. There is so much to learn. Our research assistant also has a book recommendation. It's called Salt by Mark Kurlansky. So, Gillian, after listening to this, do mm-hmm. you have any new food ambitions? Well, I once made disgusting waffles. and <laughs> Why were they disgusting? <laughs> um, I, I thought they were all right, but the feedback I got from others was they were, quote, disgusting, end quote, and oh. quote, inedible, end quote. So, oh. you know... My previous feeling about cooking was just move on from that failure and never go back to it again. But now, because of this interview, I'm going to look up 
first I'm going to look up in the, his cookbook, The Food Lab, to see if he has a waffle recipe. Mm-hmm. And um, even if he doesn't, I'm going to I'm going to attempt waffles again. Yeah, heck yeah. If you and if you want an advanced one, I have a sourdough waffle recipe that's going to blow your mind. All right. How about you? I think, you know, talking to him, it makes me get into some more long-term cooking projects. Like I try, I made um my own sauerkraut. <gasps> when quarantine first started, I decided I wanted a Reuben. So I made my Ooh. own sauerkraut. Uh, my own sourdough bread, roasted my own turkey. It was technically a Rachel, not a Reuben. Um, and made my own mayo for like the Russian dressing. And you know what? I took a bite out of that sandwich. That sandwich took six weeks to make. And I took a bite out of it. And I said, this tastes fine. It's fine. It wasn't worth six weeks. So now I want to figure out a, a long-term cooking recipe that is worth six weeks. <laughs> Did you ever go to the restaurant Baru here in L.A.? No. Oh, my goodness. It pickled so many things. It was one of my absolute favorite restaurants. Uh, you talking about sauerkraut just reminded me of that. And the same chefs have a new restaurant at Grand Central Market here in Los Angeles. And, uh, oh, my gosh, so many uh, vegan options, too, Tamika. I feel like once the world is safe, we should make— um, I was going to say it would be like a, a cast trip, but I don't think that's a podcasting term. So so maybe like it could be our team meal. <laughs> well, podcast. Hey, you got oh, cast. yeah. Yes. I'd l- also, uh, if you're in L.A., Grand Central Market is the place to go. Tamika, we taking you. Okay. It is time to read some reviews. Here's one from Vicki Herman, uh, who said this about episode six. You can find that in our feed. It's called Mathematically Exquisite Coral Reefs. Vicki says, this is my favorite episode so far. They've all been great. My daughter and I listened while waiting for the library to open this morning. At home, I showed her my 12-year-old crochet hyperbolic plane and coral, and we experimented with some 20-plus-year-old photoreactive paper. Wow! She was amazed that a woman made the first book of photos. Thanks for the inspiration! That's incredible! I love this, and I, too, have waited for libraries to open, so... Who among us has not waited for the library to open? <laughs> That's amazing. And I love that it's sparking interest in families and that parents and kids are uh, getting engaged with science together. This is so exciting to hear. You know what? We'd love to hear if you are conducting some scientific experiments at home inspired by periodic talks. So please please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments during the episode. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.